now, a word of warning. I've been struck anew, struck afresh this week by uh, how radical the gospel is, how radically different the gospel, uh, God's gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is from uh, how radically different it is from any good news uh, that the world might hold out to us. And uh, it's possible that it's so radical that this morning, if you're actually paying attention, uh, you might be shocked, perhaps even offended by the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, I kind of almost hope that you are. Not so that you stay in that state, but so that God uh, can uh, provide a landing platform in you for his truly good news, the only good news in the end uh, that is out there and available for us. Uh, I certainly uh, have kind of been, I don't know if shocked is the right word, but yeah, confronted again this week by the gospel. Uh, and I think that's a good thing. So how about we pray? Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for all that your word contains uh, with your sole and gracious intention of making yourself known to us and making the way of salvation known to us through Jesus Christ. We pray that you would help us to, uh, to receive uh, what is in your word today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, perhaps one of the uh, most famous sentences ever written is near the beginning of the American uh, the US uh, Declaration of Independence. Uh, I don't know that any of us in the room are Americans, um, but uh, most of us should probably, uh, probably know this sentence, may even know it off uh, by heart. We hold these truths to be self-evident, it says, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Independence is such a strong idea, isn't it? Who doesn't want to be independent? Or perhaps those of you who've had children, who doesn't want to see their children to grow up and become independent? Independence sounds a lot like freedom, doesn't it? But is it possible to have uh, too much of a good thing? We know it is. Is it possible to have too much independence or perhaps to uh, seek a kind of independence that is not actually good for us and certainly not freedom? You know uh, that sentence from the uh, American Declaration of Independence uh, was... Its intention was to declare independence from Great Britain of those first 13 uh, founding states. Uh, but within it is also a hint that uh, at least those who, who contributed to the document were, were perhaps seeking independence from a greater power even than Great Britain. Uh, I read just a couple of weeks ago that... The rough draft that was written by, I think, Thomas Jefferson uh, was then sent to his friend Benjamin Franklin for editing. Uh, 
And if you want to have a look at it, it's there uh, on the Library of Con Congress website, and you can see the editing marks that are made over the rough draft. And interestingly, uh, one small but significant change was this, uh, to this sentence. Originally, it didn't say we hold these truths to be self-evident. It said, we hold these truths to be sacred and undeniable. Now, do you notice the difference there? Uh, the difference from uh, the authority being held by religion or the Christian religion, the scriptures, sacred, and uh, handed over to reason, self-evident. It's just obvious, plain to everyone. Now, you might even agree with that statement that it is plain to everyone, but where does the authority lie? Who declares that all people have been created equal? Of course, the answer to that is God himself. In fact, for most of history, it hasn't been believed that all people have been created equal. And when you look around the world, there's fair evidence to sort of conclude from reason that not all people are created equal. But God declares it is so. Now, I wonder if that slip towards reason and away from uh, the sacred that's evidence there in that small way in that important document might, only be, might not only be found in such places but also uh, in our own hearts. That slip towards, that, that pull towards independence, independence from God. Now, in thinking about this subject of identity and thank you to the uh, Wednesday uh, oh, sorry, is it your Wednesday, Wednesday group, isn't it, Ellie? Yeah. Uh, for creating our, our uh, art piece for uh, today. Uh, it's a, a thumbprint, and uh, it's their growth group. So their growth group did some finger painting during the week, and their uh, fingerprints combined have made up this one uh, fingerprint. Uh, so identity is our topic, and usually we think of identity answering the question, who am I? I want to suggest that there's a, a more fundamental question when it comes to our identity and one that the Bible addresses uh, in various ways. And that question is, what am I? What am I? And you can sort of see in that question how it's more basic and fundamental than the question of who am I. What, what, what are we in a shared sense who am I? That's a relevant question, but it's more of a personal question. Who am I in myself? But what are we? What are the things that the Bible tells us are true of all people? Well, we find those in that first passage that we read, Genesis uh, chapter 1, and particularly, I think, in verses 26 and 27. You know, this happens at the end of uh, the days of creation, right at the end after everything else has been made, uh, God chooses to make uh, his, his piece de resistance. In verse 26, we read, Then God said, now that everything is prepared, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, Male and female, he created them. What do we learn there about what we are as human beings? Well, the first thing we learn, and it's 
sort of obvious but almost so obvious that you miss it, is that we're creatures. So important to understand. We're creatures. That is, we're created by God. He's the creator. We're the creatures. And that means that we're totally dependent. Totally dependent on him for everything. For life itself in the beginning. He formed us. He breathed his own breath into us. And then he provides everything for us as the uh, account goes on. Everything that we need. And so the first and crucial thing is to see that we are creatures, dependent creatures, dependent on God. And yet, uh, we're unlike all the other creatures. Uh, We're actually special, special to God, specially made by God. Uh, None of the other creatures is said to be made in God's likeness, in his image. And yet we are in God's image and likeness. And so we are very different to God. He is the creator and we are the creatures, but we're also very different to the rest of the creatures. We're set apart, set apart for God and set apart uh, to be like him. We'll come back to that in a second. Uh, Another thing, though, that we see here is that uh, God doesn't just make one human being. He makes several human beings. And I think that's... Uh, important because it's part of us being made in God's likeness. If you think about it, as the scriptures unfold, what we discover is a God who is not just God as one individual, uh, single uh, person, but rather he is a God made up of three persons, one God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God himself is in some sense that doesn't match up with our maths. (laughs) He is in some sense plural, though he is one God. Father, Son, and Spirit all in relationship with one another. And so he makes us like him in that way as well. Not just one of us, but made for relationship. Made for loving, serving relationship with one another. And also, we read here, uh, that we are made in the image of God so that we may rule over the fish in the sea, the birds of the air, and all the livestock, and all the other animals. We are made like God so that we may rule over everything else that he has made. To make it all work together. Made like God for relationship and made to rule. But notice, even though we have a shared identity, we, we all share this uh, nature, uh, it doesn't mean that we're all the same, that it's a uniformity. It's not like that at all. It's not like that in any of God's creation. Certainly he makes everything according to its kind, but within those kinds he makes great diversity. Uh, and so he does with us. And the fundamental diversity that he creates is that between male and female, a complementarity there between male and female. And that's important and significant too. Why? Well, I think for at least three reasons. One, again, it is a theological reason. Uh, and that is that our maleness and femaleness reflects the likeness of God. I'm not saying that God is either male or female, but rather that God is diverse. Uh, There is a diversity within the Godhead. Again, Father, Son and Spirit. And we, like God, share that diversity within our human nature. 
Uh, The second reason is to do with our mission. Uh, We've been given this mission to be fruitful and increase in number, to fill the earth and subdue it. How do we do that? Well, you need a male and a female to do that, to fill the earth and subdue it. And so uh, we're made male and female so that we can fulfill our mission also. Uh, It's relational. It's not good, we read, surprisingly. It's not good for the person, for the man to be alone. And so God makes a helper suitable for him to do the work, not only to fill the earth, but also the subduing part. Uh, You know, that image of Adam having all the animals brought before him when he's on his own. And, uh, you know, I imagine that one animal is brought before him and it's kind of wagging its tail and it's kind of cute and furry. And God says, what do you think? What are you going to call it? He says, well, I don't know. It's kind of happy and doting and dutiful. Let's call it dog. Okay, let's go with dog. Great. All right. And he brings another creature along and it kind of, you know, jumps and jumps and jumps and stands there before him and God says, what do you think about this one? And Adam says, well, I don't know, it kind of gave me a fright when it first came in and it's sort of frisky and let's call it frog. Dog, frog, okay, great, you know, next, next one. This hulking big animal just kind of comes on, waddles on like this and finds its place in the water and God says what do you think and Adam says "Ooh, ooh it's, it's, it's big and it's um I don't know bog we call it bog and God says right so we've got dog and we've got frog and we've got bog you really need some help <laughs> uh and and God creates a woman. And she comes along and she says, so what have you been doing? And he says, I've been naming all the animals. Oh, great. Tell me. Introduce me. Oh, okay. Well, this is dog. Oh, dog. I love dog. Dog. And this is frog. He's cute. And this is bog. Really? Bog? Why don't we call it something like hippopotamus? And Adam's never thought of that. That's, that's great. That could catch on. I like this. Hippopotamus. Probably didn't happen exactly like that. But the point being, the point being that working together, Adam and Eve were given this important task. Uh, and, and she helped him in it. And he received her help. And together, they were able to Uh, live for God under his rule and ruling like he did over the rest of creation. Uh, Two key things to know about this shared identity. Uh, First of all, they're defined by our relationship to God. See, it's it's because God uh, gives these, these attributes and these functions to us that they are foundational and defining, that that our identity is based in these things. And the second thing we need to understand about this identity, this shared identity that we all possess, 
is that our value, our value comes from here. Our value comes from these attributes that belong to all of us. But there's more to say about our identity because just as God made us all similar in some ways, he also made each one of us unique, didn't he? You know, you look around the room and you don't mistake one person for any other person. It's incredible, that. And, and there could be even more people in the room. In fact, we could travel over the other side of the world and we could find the same fact, the same simple fact that everybody is different. So when we think about our identity, we don't just ask, what am I? We also ask, who am I? And the answers that we give to those questions are things that are also given to us by God and yet they're unique to each one of us. They're personal attributes, not shared ones. Nature and nurture combining to create billions of people, no two of whom are exactly alike. And usually, usually when we think about our identity, this is where we focus, isn't it? This is what we mean. Our personal, our individual identity. But last week, what we saw uh, in Genesis 3 is that sin enters the world. And sin is a, an intentional rejection from our side or a suppression of our knowledge of God. And a, a further consequence of that is that we also suppress or reject true knowledge of ourselves. But it's not only knowledge of God that we, we reject, is it? It's his identity as God, as creator, as the one that we're dependent upon. And when we reject his identity, we also reject or deny his value. And as we cut ourselves off, off from him, we actually reject, unintentionally, we reject and deny our value and our identity too. Effectively, what we do when we, when we turn our backs on God and turn away from him is uh, we give our identity away. The identity that he gave us, we give it away. Instead of receiving our identity from God, we have to create our own identity. And how do you think we go with that? Do you think we do as good a job of God as of, give, of, of creating our own identity? And not only do we have to create our identity, but we have to find our value in whatever we can create. And ever since we did that, we've been on the scrounge. Seeking approval, seeking affirmation, seeking satisfaction in all sorts of things and in all sorts of ways. Look at me, we cry. Look at me, look at me. And there are several consequences of that. Uh, one of them is that we become very fragile. Uh, when we forget or when we suppress what we are, who we are is all we're left with. And that who becomes very fragile. In fact, instead of who we are being built on the solid ground of what we are, we tend to turn the other way and we try to build our identity out of what we do. We try to create an identity out of what we do, what we achieve, or perhaps even what we have, what we possess. And we place our identity in those lesser things. With the foundation gone, 
Nothing anymore is given, everything has to be earned and so we look to other people or things in unhealthy ways to stitch together an identity vessel that can hold our value. But it always leaks. It's not up to the task. So we become very fragile, uncertain of our true value. A second consequence is that when we're unsure about our own value, we're also unsure about each other's value. And so we're constantly comparing ourselves to each other, which also contributes to not only our fragility, but the fragility of our societies. Life becomes a competition for approval. In God's design, everyone is of equal value. What a great design. And that value doesn't change. It's not subject to inflation or deflation or any other market forces because it's pegged to the value of God himself. It works. But what happens when that's gone or forgotten or suppressed? Well, what happens is that our stocks rise and fall depending on how well we think we're doing compared to everyone else. Because what other reference point do we have? So, two consequences, fragility personally, fragility in a societal sense. But the third and by far the worst consequence is that our quest for independence doesn't just make us confused about our value, it strips us altogether of the value that God has bestowed upon us. Rather than becoming more, we become less. In fact, we become worthless according to God's word by our own choice by seeking our independence from God by rejecting his determination of our identity and our value what do we choose what occurs we actually become worthless Uh, and you can find this in God's word look at 2 Kings chapter 17 verse 15 says this, they rejected his decrees and the covenant he had made with their ancestors and the statutes he had warned them to keep. They followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. They followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. We saw this last week, remember, when we, uh, when we suppress knowledge of God, we create a big hole in our lives that we have to fill with something else. We exchange the glory of God for images made to look like created things. And the thing about our worth or our value is it is directly tied to what we worship. Remember, we're created dependent beings created to worship God, to be in relationship with him as God, which is worship. That's the appropriate way to relate to God, to worship him. What do you think happens when we put our worship on things that are less than us? Well, we take on their value. We become worthless. And that's what we read also in Romans 3. In the conclusion, in Paul's conclusion to the plight of mankind, 
having gone through chapter 1 and chapter 2 and seeing how Jews and Gentiles alike turn their backs on God, what is the consequence? Together they have become worthless, says Paul. Uh, Our quest for independence destroys our value. According to Ephesians 2, we become objects of wrath. So what's the solution? Is there any way back to that original, bestowed, given identity and value? And here's where the real shock comes, if you're not already shocked. The answer to that question is no. There is no way back. That question, what am I, answered in Genesis 1, is actually a question, what was I? Or what were we? Or what might we have been had we not turned our back on it all? But, there is a way forward. (laughs) There's no way back, but there is a way forward. Uh, Tim mentioned the fact that several of us have been overseas recently. Uh, Our family, uh, about a month ago, uh, had a week in Bali. Never been to Bali before. Uh, And there were several things about being in Bali that really annoyed me. Uh, One of those is the fact that the whole time I felt like I was being ripped off. Or at least that people wanted to rip me off. Uh, I don't know if you've been to places like this, but there's no sort of fixed prices on most things. Uh, Instead, it's basically, well, what are you willing to pay for it? And that kind of created in me some kind of moral tension. Uh, And it's because, you know, on the one hand... I didn't want to be rude and I didn't want to be uh, thought of as stingy. (laughs) Not that they really care about me, but, you know, that thought's there. But on the other hand, neither did I want to be ripped off. I don't want to be duped. Um, And I had to sort of wrestle with this. And here's what I came up with. Maybe you think I'm too generous, but here's what I came up with. I thought, you know, I've always thought that the value of a thing is in it. It's inherent in it, you know, it's to do with what it costs to make it and all that sort of stuff, and that's how you come up with the value of a thing. But over there, the value of a thing is in what someone's willing to pay for it. So it might be worth five bucks to that person and 50 bucks to that person, and that's set by what they're willing to pay for it. God bestows our value on us. That was true in the beginning and it's true now as well. See, even though we have turned our back on him and we've said, we place no value on you, God, he says, yet I still, in spite of that, remember this from last week, the gospel is, in spite of everything, God still loves us. And he says, in spite of how you have rejected my value, I still, I yet am going to place a value on you. In spite of the fact that even though by rejecting me and my value, you actually throw your own value in the bin, yet 
I value you and how he values us. Because what price is he willing to pay? See, in the gospel, we discover that God goes to market. He goes into the marketplace. Now, there's several financial descriptions of how God wins us back. He buys us back. The idea of redemption, the idea of ransom. He goes to the slave market and he finds us there. We gave away our freedom in our search for independence. and We made ourselves slaves to sin. And he doesn't sort of find us there hulking in manacles, you know, worthy of a great price. He finds us groveling on the ground, unable even to stand. And he says, I'll have that one. And I'll have that one. And I'll pay the price, whatever you ask. And the slave owner says, whatever I ask, you'll pay whatever I ask. Give me your son. But of course, that was the price that God always knew he would pay and intended to pay. And that's the value that he puts on the lowliest slave, the one who has rejected the value that he'd already given them. And yet here he comes to buy them back, buy them again, redeem them as if from the pawn shop. This is the value that is available, that can be known, that can be experienced by anyone through faith in Jesus Christ. And that is what has to happen, you understand. You have to turn your back on your foolish quest for independence. And you have to make a declaration of absolute dependence Recognising the choices you've made and the consequences that they bring, make a declaration of absolute dependence on Jesus Christ. And the consequence, the result of that, is that you have even greater value than Adam and Eve had in the garden because you are now valued not merely as creatures but as sons and daughters of the living God because you've been brought in through the one true Son, the only begotten. In Christ, we have a new identity. Notice that in 2 Corinthians 5, we are, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. A new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Now, in my experience, this new way of seeing myself is is actually hard to live. I keep slipping into the trap of trying to assert my independence from God, my independent identity and value, even though to do so is to swap royal, ra- uh, royal robes for a beggar's rags. How can we move from the insecure identity crisis created by our sin and reinforced by the world? Well, I think the answer to that comes from being able to take our eyes off ourselves. And the best way to do that is to keep our eyes on Jesus and see all of life as worshipping him. 
The question really we ought to be asking to live out our identity is not am I worthy, but is Christ worthy? Uh, Robert Murray McShane, who some of you might have heard of, uh, 19th century uh, Christian pastor, said this, the heart is deceitful above all, he's quoting Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, who can know it? Learn much of the Lord Jesus. This is his remedy. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely, such infinite majesty, and yet such meekness and grace, and all for sinners. Live much in the smiles of God, bask in his beams, feel his all-seeing eye settled on you in love, and rest in his almighty arms. And when we do that, when we appreciate and experience the worthiness and love of Christ, then we will be led to live a life of worship, which is what we were made and then remade to do. He continues, Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in him. Let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart and so there will be no room for folly or the world or Satan or the flesh. Our self-focus is smashed by God's gracious love for us in Christ. Tempted to question or prove our worth, we can ask, why am I grasping for something that is so much less than what's already been given to me as a gift? We realise then that we're looking in the wrong place and our orientation is drawn outward again, away from ourselves to see that Christ is worthy. And the centre of our life shifts again to settle where it belongs on him. And once that happens, then the question of our identity and value is settled and we're free truly free to love and serve those around us, especially those who are estranged from God and stuck on the treadmill of striving to establish their identity and value apart from him. With grace and compassion, we can reach out to them, as 2 Corinthians 5 says, as, ambas as ambassadors. Having been reconciled to God, we become ambassadors of reconciliation. That task that was given to Adam and Eve to... Uh, fill the earth, to be fruitful and to fill the earth and subdue it. An even greater task has been given to us, image bearers, given the task of reconciliation, that people might be restored to God and to themselves, receiving the identity that he gives and the great value that comes along with it. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, help us to understand that it's good news about him first and foremost, that our focus is meant to be drawn away from ourselves and towards him, to see what he has done. Yes, yes, done for us, but he has done it. He has achieved it. You bestow his identity and his value upon those who put their trust, who depend on him. So, Father, help us to do that, not, not, just, not just once, but in a continual way, that our striving might cease so that we would find instead our rest and our identity and our peace and our value in him. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.